Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crossed Up, a uh, Phillies podcast here on the Crossing Broad Network. I'm Anthony Sanfilippo at AntSanPhilly on Twitter, joined by Crossing Broad's Phillies writer Bob Wankel at BWCrossingBroad on Twitter. Uh, it's been an exciting week in baseball for the Phillies. However, I will say this, in Philadelphia sports, the last 36 hours have been absolutely awful. Flyers lose, Sixers lose tonight, Phillies lose tonight. We're burning the midnight oil yet again to provide you with uh, another great episode to talk about the Phils. But, uh, Bob, let's just – just off the top. I mean, I, we don't have to, you know, sit there and break down every loss. I mean, it, you know, it was the first time they lost in seven games. Um, wasn't a great game for the Phillies. There's some things we're going to talk about in the game. But just overall, you know, you, when you, they just didn't hit tonight, didn't have a, a, a great game. Um, uh, you know, Nola pitched well, but I mean, they didn't. They didn't have a great game at the plate. Um, just some thoughts, though, over the course of the past week as as to where this team is, uh, both offensively and uh, and and also on the mound. It's been pretty impressive uh, tonight. Aside, right? I mean, <laughs> you consider the start that they had one and four out of the gates. Everyone's crushing the manager. Uh, it looks like the sky is falling. All these expectations. And everyone's all revved up for this season. And after a week of baseball, it was kind of like, well, I guess they're not there yet. And people that watch the game and are fans of the game know that a season's not made in a week. But it was very concerning, you know. Ken Rosenthal, we talked about this last week, came out and said that Gabe Kapler was on the hot seat right away. And, you know, it was a stabilizing week for the Phillies to, to rip off six in a row. I know that they weren't playing anybody. I think the Reds and uh, the Rays were a combined 5-25 and 25 entering play today. Uh, but, you know, you have to beat up on those teams. And it was, a, it was a good stabilizing week for this team, you know, to get to 9-6 and six, uh, even after the loss tonight, they're playing 600 baseball. Um, it, it could have gone the other way for a young team. They could have unraveled. They could have let this start really snowball into something that, that kind of derailed their season in the first month. Uh, but I, I've been impressed with what I've seen. I mean, certainly I've been more impressed with the, the pitching overall, especially the starting pitching, than I've been with the collective offense. But there are a lot of positives that emerged this past week, and they've kind of reset themselves after a very bad start. And, um, you know, at least they've put themselves in position here uh, to not let the, the first few weeks of this season really hold them back. And, and I think that's kind of impressive when you consider all the contextual factors uh, that were sort of working against this team the first week of the season, first 10 days of the season. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and we're going to dive into to some of the things. And um, let's talk a little bit about – there's a couple of players from tonight's game that we want to really focus on. Um, and I know that you wanted to talk about, especially uh, Aaron Nola, um, the way he's uh, been pitching. So far, he's he's looked like the ace of this staff and uh, has not had a bad, a bad overall outing. Uh, he's had some short outings, but not a bad overall outing. Um, really, I mean, this—he actually started twice since we last uh, did a podcast. Uh, the game against the Reds, he was lights out. I mean, he went eight innings. Probably could have gone a ninth if that game was still a one-run game before the grand slam. Um, would have been interesting to see if if Kapler would have trotted him out for the ninth inning or not. He was at I think at 102 pitches at that point. Um, but he was just so he was so on for that game. And then again, um, a little bit of trouble early last night, but for the most part, pitched a solid six innings last night. So uh, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Nola and, and where he's at and some interesting numbers about him as well. 
So it really just depends on how you look at Aaron Nola right now. Uh, my position is that the guy is an ace. Uh, I do think he's a top-of-the-rotation, a legitimate top-of-the-rotation starter. Uh, I know he doesn't have the big imposing frame or the long flowing hair of somebody like Noah Syndergaard. He doesn't have the huge 98-mile-an-hour fastball. Um, and, and so from the, the sex appeal standpoint, you don't necessarily – look at him and go, this guy is an absolute stud. But really, since the beginning of last season, since the start of the 2017 season, he's been one of the best starting pitchers in the National League. And through four starts this season, uh, he's been really even better than he was a year ago uh, by a lot of standards. And he comes in after four starts here. He's got a 2.22 ERA, uh, a .95 whip. Uh, he, he's been outstanding. I'd like to see him go a little bit deeper into games. He's only averaging about six innings per start right now. Uh, but as the season progresses, I think that he'll do that. Uh, like you said, he probably could have gone a little bit deeper. He probably could have gone the, the distance last week if the game were, were different. And he probably could have hung around for a seventh inning last night, but they chose to pinch hit for him uh, because the offense wasn't doing anything. And then obviously we remember uh, game one, uh, what happened there. But... You know, it's been an encouraging start for him. Uh, the numbers look great. I think that he is on his way to making an all-star team for the first time this season. But one thing that, that kind of jumps out at me that, that could be potentially concerning is that last year, his K per nine rate was roughly 9.8, 9.9 strikeouts per nine innings, right? And this year, he only has 15 strikeouts in 24 and a third innings pitch, which is 5.5 Ks per nine. And so you're almost four full strikeouts per nine innings. And I know it's early here, but clearly he's not putting batters away uh, via strikeout the way that he has the past couple of seasons. It's been a consistent number. Uh, and what do you make of that? Well, I, I, I think it's interesting. Um, and I'll tell you something I remember back, and it's, you know, here I am going to hearken Pete McCannon, right? But um, in Nola's rookie year, he had a couple of really nice starts in a row. And McCannon said, um, and I'm not going to compare him to this guy because this guy's a Hall of Famer, but he has a lot of the similar qualities that a young Greg Maddox had. And at the, peop at the time, people were like, like, what? How can you say Nola and Greg Maddox in the same sentence? And, and I still don't think you can say the two of them in the same sentence, ultimately. Um, but I, I think I can see what now what Pete was talking about then because Nola's, like you said, he's not blowing you away. He's he's not going out there and saying here's a here's my you know here's my heater, and I'm just going to put it past you, and you're not going to be able to do anything with it. He's become a real. Um, he's painting corners. He's he's uh, throwing uh, his curveball and fastball counts and pitching backwards and keeping hitters off balance. He's really got a good feel for where he's at on the you know in a game. And uh, in in his with his arsenal as well, um, he knows his pitches and what pitches are working, which ones aren't, or which ones are more effective. And I think he's doing a really nice job of studying the team that he's about to pitch against. I think that there's a really, you know, good uh, game plan that he get, that he comes up with uh, for each game. And although his strikeout rate is low. Uh, Zalecki had an interesting story yesterday, and I think this kind of this kind of ties into that a little bit with Nola. Is the Phillies um, are their starters are among the league leaders at inducing weak contact? Now I know that's one of those um, analytics things, right? And 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 I know that a lot of people think I'm I'm an anti-analytics guy, but in this instance, I'm not. I mean, I really think that that's something. If you see that you can pitch batters a certain way, that 
they're going to swing at a ball but maybe not hit it well, then fine. Then do that. You don't have to strike everybody out. You have defense behind you. And the Phillies have a pretty good defense. Not great. It's not terrible. It's, a, it's pretty good. Um, and I think that, you know, Nola has done a nice job of that, of pitching to the weakest areas for batters. So, I mean, yeah, okay, you could be a little bit concerned that that, that rate came down. But I'll tell you this. Why was I think baseball was so crazy last year with all the home runs and the whole thing about, well, we're not afraid to strike out anymore, that some pitchers have to now think of it, okay, well, how can we change that? How can we change that narrative? How can we make it so that we are not a home run only league? You know, these guys are swinging for defenses. I got to get them to do something else. And I think that they're attacking guys differently than they were before. And you, and then maybe that's why you're going to see numbers come down a little bit this year. I was not saying that we're not going to have these launch angles and everything else, but I still think I don't think it can be the same pace as last year. And I think that's that's the pitchers adjusting more so than the hitters not being able to keep up. So you tie all that together, and it's it's a lot of information. It's a lot of different things kind of being thrown in at once. But I think that's what's making Aaron Nola the, the ace of this staff and, and a really, like you're saying, so far, first month of the season, or well, three weeks at least, um, the kind of guy who can be uh, a, a National League All-Star. It's really interesting. If you look at his numbers, right, uh, like just pitch selection, um, last year, 2017, 53.5% of his pitches were fastballs. This year, 53.4% of his pitches are fastballs. Right. Uh, curveball percentage, 30.8% last year, 30.9% this year. Change up, it's almost identical as well. So he's still throwing uh, the pitches. You know, He's still distributing his pitch selection the same way that he was a year ago. Right. Uh, and actually, the velocity is similar, too. I mean, the fastball last year, average fastball velocity, 92.7. It's 92.8 this season. So, I mean, he's right in line with everything else the strikeouts just aren't there so I do wonder if it's just been a collective you know if it's been a conscious decision to say I'm not interested in racking up double digit K's I'm interested in like we talked about here inducing weak contact being more efficient and hopefully and though it really hasn't worked out yet to this point lasts you know gets him deeper into games you know he lasts longer um so that's why I'm not concerned about it just because everything seems to kind of stack up you know in terms of velocity in terms of pitch selection uh, it seems to stack up uh, very favorably to, to what it did a year ago when he was striking out almost 10 batters per nine innings so I kind of expect these numbers to sort of even out a little bit and I I kind of would use those numbers to say that he might be Come better as the season progresses. Uh, I've been extremely, uh, extremely impressed with him through four games, and uh, I think that the Phillies legitimately do have an ace that they can claim here and say, you know, as we go into a playoff series, we don't mind throwing this guy in a game one, game two uh, against a, you know, one of the better rotations in the in the National League. And I think that the Phillies can say that with confidence right now. Yeah, I I, I agree, and um, they've really been getting good starting pitching for the most part throughout. I mean. A guy that we've talked about before, Nick Pavetta, has been sensational through his three starts so far. Um, and I'm not just bringing him up because, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy who really is, is high on Pavetta. But I, I think that, you know, he's been very consistent through three games. Um, 
Arietta's Arietta. I mean, he's only really had his two starts so far. We'll we'll see how he looks again. I think he pitches tomorrow. Is that correct? Or uh, a little bit later in the week? Yeah. Or he, he, threw, he, threw, he threw Saturday Thursday. night. Oh, he yeah. threw Saturday. That's right. Okay. So so he so he's probably not till Thursday. Um, and then uh, Velasquez, his last start had a nice had a, a better start. You know, more more efficient. Um, was really good on his pitch count, and it was interesting in that game. I I texted you at one point. Um, his change-ups. Change yeah. yeah. Uh, the percentage of change-ups that, uh, that he was throwing in comparison. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. I'm going I'm to pull it up here because uh, it was, it was kind of crazy. Um, I forget exactly what it was. But it was, it was some kind of per- percentage where he, I think he threw two, the previous two starts, and then he had the first inning he threw six and struck out each batter on each of them. I believe that's what it was, something along those lines. But anyway, the fact of the matter is is that you could see that there was a change in Velazquez's approach as well. So i, I got to give the Phillies credit for, for the way that they're working with their starting pitchers right now. And, and really, you know, again, it's one start for Velazquez. It's only three starts per, for Pavetta, four starts for Nola. So we're really not talking about a big sample. Um, but the fact of the matter is is that it's, it's a, an encouraging approach that their starting pitching is taking toward the opposition. Yeah, the word is encouraging. Uh, I Forgive me for being uh, pessimistic or at the best cautious with Vince Velasquez. I think I've talked a little bit about my feelings uh, regarding him uh, in the first few podcasts. I just, I mean, one of those games, he's put together two, two good games now, but one of those games his team scored 20 runs for him. Uh, that obviously completely changed the dynamic of that game. And he then came out and he threw against a you know a bad a bad team in the next start and so I just uh, I don't know I I just don't buy him I don't um, maybe he's turning a corner maybe he's finally looking at guys like Aaron Nola maybe he's getting a different voice you know new pitching coach and, and says okay uh, I see where I've gone wrong the past couple seasons and I have to make adjustments and maybe he is making those adjustments and maybe the last two starts are indications uh, that or you know strongly suggest that he is on the way to making those adjustments and really evolving as a pitcher. Um, but I, yeah. I need to definitely see more. I need to see like four or five of those starts you know, strung together before Absolutely. I start to say, yeah, you know what, maybe this guy really is Absolutely. truly turning the corner. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. But, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just indicative of the fact that the guy does not throw a changeup. Right. That he comes out in the last start and he's throwing it he's consistently. Throwing it, yeah. So that I mean, to me, that's something that's that suggests that there is something that Rick Kranitz is doing with him to say, "Hey, listen, let's try this and let's see what happens." So, you know. So, so I mean, I th- it, now again, Velasquez could go back to trying to be the you know the meathead who wants to throw you know, throw his fastball by you that he really can't do, um, and, and then it, it, it ends up blowing up on you. But let's see progression over the next couple of starts is that changeup now becoming a real third option for him and if it does does that make him a better pitcher you know if it does if he ends up being your number four and and he's giving you you know what a whip of around 1.3 and you know giving you six innings you're going to complain about that I won't I probably don't no, if he's if he can settle in as a, a four or five guy, I mean, then then fine. But I think that the expectation of him being yeah. a legitimate, you know, front end of the rotation starter, I think that that's probably unrealistic at this point. I think you're right. Um, let's jump back into last night, or I'm sorry, tonight a little bit. Um, my my issue, I guess, in this game, and I'm not going to sit here and kill the Phillies after winning six straight games. I mean, it would be insane to do that. But I think there are some uh, some 
talking points that emerge from this game tonight. And one of them is uh, everybody's favorite center fielder, Odubel Herrera. Uh, oh, boy. Here we go. You know, we both like Odubel Herrera. I actually love the guy. I think that he may be really one of their most talented offensive players. I, I like the energy. Uh, I like the pop. I know that he, he hit his first home run of the season tonight, but I think that that was just kind of a, a fluke that he had not put one out yet. Um, I like the way that he kind of plays the game. I think he's entertaining. Uh, but he ran into a classic Odubel Herrera moment tonight. And uh, top of the third, 1-1 game, runner on first base uh, after Carlos Santana walk, and he, he rips a ball down the right field line. And it looks like it's going to be a double, and he goes into second base standing up. Throw comes in, and he's uh, tug out at second base. And so have, instead of having runners on second and third with one out to set up a potential scoring situation, there's only a runner on third with two outs. And the only thing I can say about this is that, thank God, the 76ers were on tonight because otherwise <laughs> he would be getting absolutely annihilated right now. Uh, it, was, it was everything that Odubel Herrera you know, gets criticized for, everything that people hate about him. Uh, and, and sometimes unfairly, I think, uh, it was all wrapped into that one play last night, and it was bad, and it, it directly contributed to the Phillies losing this game. Yeah, I mean, you know, last night, if you really want to, I mean, there's different points in that game last night where the Phillies could, had opportunities and and blew them. Um, on the offensive side, that's probably the most glaring. And you have Herrera not sliding. After the game, he apologized and said he should have. You know, he felt bad. He feels bad. Um, you know what was interesting? After the inning, uh, Reese Hoskins went over to him and started talking to him, and apparently, like he was offering, you know, being like that leader type, which is which is really kind of cool. I mean, the guy's less got less than a year in the bigs, and he's already kind of like the, the team captain, right? Um, but at the same time, it, it, you know, maybe somebody like that, maybe a teammate talking to Herrera, because he's never really had that. I mean, when you look at Herrera's time here, has there really been like a legit leader that would really kind of Take him, you know, under his wing and kind of talk to him and 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 let him know how how what he's doing could affect the team. I don't, I don't think he has, um, and so the fact that he's able to communicate that that that's kind of cool to me. I think that that's something that you might see see some changes. I mean, you know, Odubel's always going to be Odubel. He's always going to you know swing at a terrible pitch and then somehow the next pitch come out and, and lace a double down the line. Um, he's always going to have some kind of goofball moment where he smacks himself in the helmet because he's being stupid the fact of the matter is this guy right now is hitting 340 his on base percentage is 397 okay he leads he's got the best batting average of any center fielder in baseball his on base percentage is second of, of any center fielder his slugging percentage is 491 is fifth of any center fielder his his uh f war is 10.8 since 2015 that's seventh in baseball among center fielders. Yeah, he had a down year last year. And, and he had down year. extra base hits, right? right. So <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, the Phillies win more games because of Herrera than they lose. Yeah, and oh, by the way, he's he's cheap. I mean, yes. he, he signed a team-friendly deal. I mean, when you look at the value that this guy gives you, uh, I'll deal with I'll deal with the occasional you know boner of a play if if this is what we're going to get out well, of the guy. I mean, ultimately, go back to the to the glory years, you know, in the, uh, 10 years ago, uh, you know, between 07 and 12. 
the Phillies, I mean, you know, we talked about it ad nauseum then, too. I mean, not me and you, but, I mean, just in general in this city about Jimmy Rollins when he wouldn't run out a ball or whatever. But, I mean, did you ever want to take Rollins off the field? I didn't. I mean, you would get frustrated in the moment, but you would never want to take him off the field because he decided not to run out a ball that, that he should have run out or, you know, something like that. So, all right, are, are Herrera's mistakes a little bit different than Rollins? Yeah. But at the same time, like, it's the same. He's a catalyst player. And he may not be the leader that Rollins was, but he is certainly a catalyst player in the way he plays the game. I, I don't want to take him off the field. I got a little exercise for you here. Ready? Player A, player B. Yeah. All right. So player A through three full seasons, 290 batting average, 347 on base percentage, 35 home runs, 12 triples, 87 doubles, 10.8 war. Player B through three full seasons, 287, 343 on base percentage, 32 homers, 19 triples, 72 doubles, 9.7 war. All right. Player A is Odubel Herrera. Player B is Shane Victorino. So everyone in this city loves Shane Victorino, right? Right. Uh, And if you can think back far enough, he was not exactly always the most uh, dialed-in guy either. He he did some pretty, you know, quirky things himself. Sure. But he is a hero in this city. Well, what's the difference? Well, Shane Victorino played on good teams and had opportunities to have big moments in the postseason, whereas Odubel Herrera has been on a, you know, a 65-win team since he's been up here. When you look at what these guys are, though, and, I mean, what Odubel Herrera can be, there's no doubt in my mind that if the Phillies get, you know, into a situation where they're playing postseason baseball, that he's going to be a big reason, A, why they get there, and, B, he has a chance to become one of the better players that this team has had, that this franchise has had in the last 25, 30 years. But people go crazy because he flips his bat. He occasionally, you know, loses focus from time to time. But when you look at the stat line, you look at the production, and you look at what this guy gives you – it's, it's utterly crazy to me that this city, and, and, and I don't know if this is a Philly thing or what it is, but it's like, well, he's, he's not one of us. He's not one of our guys. He doesn't bring his lunch pail to work every day. You know, he's not a grinder. He's not cerebral. What, what, the, what do you want? I mean, yeah. the, the guy is an outstanding baseball player. And, and, yeah, it drove me nuts tonight. I was like, come on, man. Like, I love you. I defend you. I'm always putting up for this guy on Twitter. Fans love to get into about Odubel Herrera with me on Twitter, but – and I'm like, come on, I'm, I'm out here, I'm sticking my neck out for you, and you're doing this to me. But at the end of the day, the guy's a hell of a baseball player, and I don't understand the, the shit that this guy gets in this city. I really don't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, I'm, and this is me going off on a, on a, out on a real far limb, okay? <laughs> but I'm gonna, but I, I firmly believe this. I want you to think, Bob, and we don't have to think long, because I don't think that there's many, many uh, scenarios that, that are the same. Uh, tell me the last time that, any sports team in this town, any of the four major sports teams in this town, had a player who was a borderline star player or a star player who was not, you know, not North American and couldn't, didn't have great grasp of the English language. Is this a trick question? But, oh, it's should not I a have, trick question. Have no, any no, answer for this? no, there's not. It's not a trick yeah. question. The point is, is that you really like. I'm having a hard time coming up with one. I'm sure there have been a couple of Flyers players that were Europeans who, you know, didn't didn't speak the greatest English. But hockey's a whole hockey mindset is a whole different thing, right? Right. Um, but really, have the Phillies had a a legitimate star player who may have been Hispanic who didn't speak great English? 
No, he, I mean, I guess just along that vein, and I know it's it's Panama, but I mean, Carlos Ruiz, also not a star player. He was more of a, a you know a secondary player on those right. teams, but I mean, certainly a guy that was beloved here. But right, uh, but, my, but my point my point is is that it, it's it's sad that I have to bring this up, but I think that this is a thing in this city, and and that's why when you say he's not one of us, well, he's really not one of us. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's not good. That doesn't necessarily mean just because he can't sit there and exp- and sound you know good on give you give you a good sound bite in an interview, right? And just because he is a little quirky, and we've had quirky in this city before that people have loved, and and here's a quirky guy that people don't love because they don't understand him. Yeah, and, 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 they, and I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, it oh, may be, I think but, I think it is. Okay, I really well, do. What I would say to that then is that that's a damn shame, right? Because oh, it I is. Mean, and not only is the guy a great baseball player. I mean, I, I think that he's completely undervalued and underappreciated here. But if if that really is the dynamic that that leads to that lack of appreciation, that's a shame because by all counts, he's a good guy too. You yeah, know, there's well, nothing that suggests that that he's not. You know, that he's not everything that you would want. Your you know, representing your franchise. I'll bring so you, it, that's a shame. If that is what well, I'll, I'll bring you back to, was it last year when Schmidt said? I that, know that's the first right? thing that popped into my head when you said this. Well, and I mean, I mean it's, that mentality that that sucks, man. But, I, but I, that's the but that, you know what I thought that Sh- I thought Schmidt was a little too blunt about it, and, and and maybe that's why he took as much flack as he did. But I don't think he's wrong in a sense. I, yeah, you you can certainly be a leader without being, you know, you know, having great command of the English language. But I think that Schmidt was looking at it from. A, you know, from the, the public perception, like the public can't perceive him as a leader. I, and I think that's where Schmidt's mistake was. If he would have said it that way and put the onus not on Herrera, but more so on on the fans who are following the team who can't really see him as a leader because they can't because he can't communicate. They can't communicate with him in the same way that you can with other players. Right. And I think that is to me, unfortunately, in this city. Because of how parochial <laughs> we are in Philadelphia, that that's that is why that's why we're you know we don't embrace Odubel Herrera. If Odubel Herrera was was Joe Smith from you know Kansas, you know I, they'd love him. If, with, he, was, with if the, he was Scott Kingery. <laughs> Exactly. Right? I mean, Scott Kingery's been here for for three weeks, and I think people are ready to build statues. And and I love Scott Kingery. Don't get yeah. me wrong. You know, this is nothing against Scott Kingery. Right. But it kind of proves my point. I mean, Odubel Herrera's been here for a few years, has been ultra productive, and he's never gotten that type of that adoration. You know, right off the bat. And 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 again, though, and I, I think it has something to do more with the fact that they just haven't been that good. Uh, and I think that that's that part helps. of the reason that he that's gets over. That's part of the reason too. You're right. You know, and I I tend to look at it more that way. I mean, you may be you may be right on that. And I mean, Mike Schmidt, uh, you know, when he said that, I kind of just went, oh Jesus, you know. Uh, as soon as I heard he that, said, I said, he this. said it the wrong way. Yeah, he, he, he sure did. He, he put the focus on the player, and it's it's not it's not on the player, and it's not the way that the player is perceived in the clubhouse. It's more how he's perceived publicly, and I think that's where Schmidt's error was, in my in my estimation. Yeah. But otherwise, I think he would, Schmidt was was pretty right about it, and and that's it's it's a damning thing to say about our city, but it's it's sad, but it, it's the truth, you know. I, really, I I can't come up with a a player who was in this city who was a star, who's you know had a communication issue with the fans. I, really, can you? I can't come up with one. Yeah, I'm trying to scan. I'm, I'm focusing on baseball right now. I guess uh, certainly none in baseball. Yeah. I mean, like you said, Chooch is probably the closest, and he wasn't a star player, right? 
yeah, and he, I mean, he, I... he was beloved because Charlie Manuel called him Chooch. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, yeah, they, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a colloquialism that's really you know, big in Philadelphia when you call someone a big Chooch, right? So I mean, when all of a sudden you got Charlie Manuel calling your, your catcher Chooch, I mean, that's where it started. And then he just be kind of became beloved because he was such a great defensive catcher and you know, this cute little guy, and, and that's that's really what it was. And so, but he's not a star. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, you don't have, we've never had that. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens here. As this season goes on, if they continue to win games and he plays well, I mean, we'll, we'll see what theory kind of takes precedent here, you know, which one sort of emerges. I think if the Phillies kind of turn themselves into a contender here as this season rolls along, and he's hitting 325, and he makes a second all-star team, and, you know, he's doing the things that he does. I, you know, my hope is that people learn to appreciate him uh, because I just think I think it's kind of a bogus deal. I think that it's it's kind of a – it's a damn shame, I think. You know, yeah. that's, that's where I'm at on, on Odubel Herrera. So. And, and I, we have one more thing to talk about with him. It's kind of interesting is because – Last night, um, there was a shallow fly ball. Yeah, bottom um, of the fourth inning. Kurt in Suzuki. the fourth inning. Yeah, this is how the Braves scored a run on this. And it was kind of a 50-50 ball between Herrera and Altair. And uh, you and I agree on this. I'll, I'll let you take us through it because I, cause you and I kind of agree on whose ball this is and, and, who should get, and who should get it. But the fact of the matter is is that everyone after the game disagreed with us, including you know, the media and the manager, and, every, and everyone disagreed with us and said that it's that they put the blame on Herrera. So go ahead. Yeah, so let's set this up. It's a 1-1 game, bottom of the fourth. Kurt Suzuki comes up, and he hits a shallow fly ball to right field, right center field. Both Odubel Herrera and Aaron Altair converge on the ball. And uh, Ozzy Albies, who has some speed, is on third base, and he tags up for the Braves. And it's a late call. There's, like, hesitation. And, Her- uh, I'm sorry, Herrera is called off uh, by Altair, and Altair kind of catches the ball and is moving from right towards center field. And he has to take like an extra two steps to gather himself, uh, you know, because it was such a late call and he comes through it late. And when he gathers himself, he makes a fairly strong throw to the plate, but Albies beats the throw and it turns into the go ahead and eventual game winning run. I looked at that play and I said, that's Aaron Altair all the way. He's got the stronger arm. Anytime you have a 50-50 ball like that and you're talking about a base runner tagging up, you want the stronger arm to converge on the ball, make the call early on, get behind it, set the feet, and, and let it rip. And it, there was this hesitation between the two guys, and you know it cost Altair a step, and it cost the Phillies a run. And after the game, uh, it, it seemed that, that Herrera was the one that received blame for that. I don't particularly understand that. I would want Aaron Altair to come through that ball aggressively and make that throw. And I think that that was a play in combination with Herrera's gaffe earlier in the game uh, that really, you know, was the reason the Phillies didn't win a seventh straight game for the first time since 2012 tonight. Well, and the interesting thing is, is that here's what Kapler does after the game. He grabs Herrera, brings him in to his, uh, into his office, and he has a post-game meeting with him. And in the meeting, he says um, that, A, you have to slide. Okay, we all agree on that. Um, and then Kapler says this to him, and this is a quote because Kapler said it to, to the media. I think this is, this is from Matt Gelb's story in The Athletic. You're always the captain of the outfielders as a center fielder. So at that point, you call everybody off and you take the ball. You get behind it and you make your best throw to the plate. He understands that well, and the next time out, he's going to throw his ass out at the plate. I, again, why do, you, why do you want the guy with the weaker arm in a 50-50 ball calling off the guy with the stronger arm? It doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. Like that to me, that play is totally on Altair and not on Herrera, and yet here we are. The, the narrative that's being presented out there is that oh, Odubel screwed up again. No, he did not. 
that is the that is all Altair's ball, and, and he's 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 a faster player. He's a better defensive outfielder, I think overall. I mean, Herrera's not bad, but I mean, I think Altair, I think is a better better range, and he's got a stronger arm. You get, that's the guy you want throwing it, throwing him out at the plate. Not Herrera. I'm sorry. I, I disagree I can't, with the I can't get over the quote. I can't get over the quote. Like, why is everything so over the top? It's like, oh, he will I'm do good. it better next time, and he will throw his ass out, and he <laughs> will be the greatest center fielder to ever play baseball ever. You yeah. know, like, I mean, I just feel like everything – I understand wanting to give your players a vote of confidence. Like, I know you want to have their backs, but I just feel like everything this guy does is so drenched in hyperbole. It's like, oh. he will do it next time. It will be the best thing ever. Yeah, It's just – it's so – it just comes across as so insincere to me. It is. It is insincere. Everything about he, it, it, it. Well, we'll we'll get into well, it. We're going to talk just, about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to talk too much more about a two-one loss after a yeah. six-game win streak. But yeah, those were the plays that kind of stuck out last night, and I think that it's it's worth talking about just because of the larger issues. I think it just stems beyond one play in one game. You know, I think that there there's a greater takeaway from that, and and those were things that kind of jumped out at me tonight. So let's talk about your boy Gabe Kapler. Uh, they've only lost one game. Uh, since we've last recorded manager of the year Phillies went from one and four to to nine and six they're playing 600 baseball they lead the wild card everything was falling apart fans wanted him fired local media was all over him Ken Rosenthal was reporting that he was on the hot seat and here we are Gabe Kapler manager of the nine and six Phillies they're four and one in one run games first loss coming tonight uh, he seems to have righted the ship here. They've stabilized themselves. And uh, so tell me, do you now love Gabe Kapler? Is he now doing a good job? Um, I think that I, I heard that they're uh, planning to have a uh, chiseled, oiled-up statue oh, right outside the home plate entrance uh, of, of Citizens Bank Park coming. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I can't, you can't criticize a guy when the team's winning, right? I mean, you really can't. I mean, and and the one thing I will say about Kapler is I f- I've felt for the most part um, in the last week or so um, that he's that he's gone back to a more traditional managerial style. He's not he's not this. What he's done in the past week or so has not been as ridiculous as what he did the first week and a half of of his managerial career. So I mean, credit to him for for stemming that tide a little bit and and going a little bit more on gut. I'll give you an example. We talk about Herrera a little bit. Opening day, it was Aaron Knoll against Julio Teheran, and Kapler didn't start Herrera and said that the reason was is because it was the matchups thing. It was Nola pitching. He throws more ground balls, blah, 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 this and that. So we had like this whole super like informative reasoning behind not starting Odubel Herrera on opening day. Well, same matchup last night, and Herrera's batting third. Well, what changed? Here's his quote. More information. We have a lot more information today than we did on opening day. <laughs> okay, right, all right. Odubel's been, pretty, worth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Odubel's been pretty damn good for us. That doesn't mean that we didn't know that he was going to be pretty good on opening day, but we have more information now that leads us to believe, and then he's cut off. The reporter stops him and says, oh, whoa, 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 Gabe, Gabe, Gabe. What information do you have? And here's his response. Super, super healthy. <laughs> His legs are underneath him. The healthiest ever. Yeah. He's running the bases hard every time. He's one of the best teammates we have. All those things I heard about Odubel coming in, and some of the things I heard were that were maybe, and then he stops himself. And then he goes, I'm going to take a step back. 
what we what we've seen from Odubel is a very alert, very aware, very very prepared baseball player. It's not to say that we didn't know that, but now we have even more information that suggests that it's very difficult to take Herrera out of the lineup because he's been that good. Oh, now you have that information? You needed two weeks of watching him play? You couldn't see what he did over the past two and a half seasons to, to tell you that, oh, yeah, this guy is good in your lineup? Give me a freaking break. So that's why I get frustrated, okay? I mean, could he, he could have just said he's gotten off to a hot start. Yeah. We're going to play him more. You know? I think ref- that would have been sufficient. You know, it not all that been. other stuff. Yeah. Hey, this, that's what drives me nuts. And it almost makes you think that when you hear him talk like that – and I know that this we're gonna this you know, I'm gonna draw comparisons to Charlie Manuel because Charlie Manuel was not the greatest communicator as a manager to the media. Didn't always come you know he was stumb, you know stumbled a lot and uh, over his words and things like that. And it took a while for us to to really appreciate Charlie. Uh, so I don't want that comparison to come in. But I think that you know when you hear this, I mean it real. I feel like I'm watching an infomercial. <laughs> when I watch Gabe Kapler talk about his baseball team, and that doesn't in, that doesn't instill any confidence in me that he knows what he's doing. It just it, it, you know what it instills in me. It instills in me that this guy feels like he has to constantly pull the wool over your eyes so that you don't really see what's happening. It's like an overcompensation, basically. It's like I want to make sure that I that I articulate what I what it is I'm trying to say. I want to make sure that I get my point across. And in order to do that, I'm going to go so over the top. Uh, and, and I think that that's what it is. I, I said a couple minutes ago, it's it seems insincere. And I think that people are kind of onto that. And I think you talked about that previously. That that this city will not you know they're onto that they they know when you're when you're kind of selling them on something and he just all he had to say was that I didn't really like the spring that Odubel Herrera had I wanted to you know go with some information that we had that that suggested that he had struggled against this particular guy he's played really well the first two weeks of the season he's a bat that we're not going to take out of the lineup right now and and that would have been fine Right, right. But all and, this, and, he's super healthy. He's running very hard. Well, uh, but that's the, you're right, like, Bob. That, on, but dude. that's and that's and that's where I want. See, like I could have given him if he would have said it the way you just said it, I'd be giving him a ton of credit as the manager because then I sit there and say, you know what? Here's a guy who's looked at his at his data, and even though the data is telling him it's probably not the right thing to do. He's going with the fact that guess what? The, the computer can't de- determine, you know, how a guy's been playing in the last week or two you know or how a guy's feeling and you can sit there as the manager and go you know what this guy's hitting he's playing really well I don't care what the data says how can I take this guy out of the lineup that would have been he he would if he says that he he warms himself up to everyone because he's being blunt and honest with you instead of feeding us the crap that he's feeding us and so, like, I wanted to sit there and say, Gabe, you're right. This, it was the right decision to keep him in the lineup. Tell us why you did. Tell us that you went with your gut. It's okay to say that. You don't have to, come, you don't have to act like you're betraying your belief in, in, the, in the computer's numbers. You could sit there and say, you know what, I, I just think as the manager that the guy's going really well and I want to keep him in the lineup. And all that hey. indicates to me is that, that this is – a little bit of a – there's ego involved with this, right? Oh, and 100%. And that's really the deal because I don't really care. At the end of the day, I don't care what he says. Like, that annoys me. Like, the over-the-top stuff annoys me. But does that have anything to do with them winning baseball games? Because that's the primary objective here, and that's all that really matters. I mean, I can point to guys like Bill Belichick, right? He gives the media nothing, whereas right. Gabe Kapler's – giving us all this crazy stuff you know, on the total opposite end of the spectrum. But a guy like, you know, Greg Popovich, right, isn't exactly a wizard with the media. 
I know that he, it's very calculated and he's actually a very witty guy and all that stuff. But again, he wins a ton, isn't great with the media. Gabe Kapler's not great with the media because he's, he's just kind of talking himself into a corner. I don't really care about any of that so long as they win. But you can see here that it's about ego. He wants to interject himself into the story of this season and into the Phillies' rise, if they happen to rise, if, if this team continues to trend in that direction. You can see that he wants to be a part of that. He's not a guy that's just overseeing. He believes that he is actively, I, I think, and this is my interpretation of it, when you listen to these quotes, he very much wants to be a focal point of this story, uh, you know, and of this season's narrative and the evolution of this narrative. That's what I get when I listen to him talk. Mm-hmm. That he yeah, likes I, being the headline. He likes being a topic on talk radio. He wants to hear his name. He wants people to debate. He wants to hear people crush him. He wants to hear people defend him. I, I think that there is just a there's an ego at play here. That's my takeaway when I listen to this guy talk. And I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but you know, uh, that's my my takeaway of it. And you're sp- and you're spot on, man. I'm telling you because you know I've done this long enough where I've talked to coaches and athletes and and everything, and you and you know, you, you know you you f- you figure it out. I mean, the, the one thing I will say for traditional media guys, even though that they've kind of lost focus on how to how to tell a story in, in today's age i think that the one thing that they do is they they are able to to cut through the bs and and figure out what's what and it, I, I i love the fact that you know in a game like this last yesterday and this this interview these these interviews with with kapler the ones that were before the game and the ones that were after after the game um they they don't cut him slack i mean they just they will interrupt him and say no now you need to explain yourself no explain yourself no and i give them a lot of credit for that because they they're on to him and that's a good thing because if you it's if not it's going to be you know the inmates running the asylum well we'll see how he evolves right because i mean he has to the first week of the season was crazy town i mean we were seeing stuff that it wasn't revolutionary it was just insane and it was stupid but then yeah. he takes a step back, and I don't know if someone in the organization got a hold of him and said, yo, dude, you know, you've got to dial this 55 steps back. Yeah. Or if he looked at it himself and just did some, you know, some, a self-assessment and said, okay, all right, uh, we're going to still do some things my way, but maybe not quite to the extent that we have thus far because it's not working, and right. I'm going to lose my job, and I'm going to lose this team. Um, but so he changed. You know, he, he did adapt uh, to some extent here. Yes. And I wonder if, if as he – listens to the feedback that he gets and people are not they are not appreciative of these explanations and they do see through it I do think that the guy if nothing else he's intelligent Uh, I think that that's that's very obvious he is an intelligent guy and I wonder if you know if he's so in tune with with other people and he's this great communicator which we've heard so much about um, I wonder if he will adapt and say okay uh, this is not working for me. I think that people are getting the wrong idea about me. Let me just be honest about it. And I'll, I'll be very interested to see as as we go through uh, the spring here, does he start to change in the way that he handles these questions? Or is he going to continue to oversell everything and, and come across this way? Yeah, I think I think that's, that's very uh, important. And I think, uh, and we discussed this before, even more important is how is he interpreted in that clubhouse? How, how, do, how do the players relate to him right. and yeah, I know you got a couple guys who've come out and said he's awesome but we've also had a couple guys who disagreed with his decisions so I mean it's kind of like a 50-50 in there right now I think ultimately that's the most important thing because 
he he runs the risk, and I think he's already kind of there um, uh, of be, for the fan base of becoming Andy Reid. Okay, he has, he he can really be that guy, whether the team's successful or not. Who you just who just drives you crazy every time you hear him talk, right? But the difference was was Reed was loved, beloved by his players. He had a great relationship with his players. They would do anything for him. They loved the guy. They still communicate with him all the time. Like I mean, he was a real players coach. If Kapler can can more importantly. Uh, become a player's manager and have the players love playing for him. It doesn't matter how he's perceived, how he's perceived by us, right? It doesn't matter how we, what we think of him. We could be frustrated by every word that he ever says, but if the players love him and they and it translates to success, then that's all that matters, right? So, I mean, that's to me, that's where his balancing act has to be. You know what I've kind of picked up on? I, I think there's some people that have already made up their mind about him, that he just is not going to be successful. Like, it's not going to work out, and people just, they're done with them already. They saw one week, and that was enough, and, and that's unfair. But right. there, there's like this, I've noticed this, and I'm not going to get into any names specifically, but I have noticed a couple writers and a couple on-air radio talents that have kind of gone the other way on Gabe Kapler. Let's like... He's good, and you guys just don't realize it. And you're seeing this now that they're winning games that he is good, and you were wrong for attacking him and criticizing him in that opening week. And, like, I don't know if you know who I'm talking about right now specifically, but <laughs> there are a couple guys that do this. And I feel like it's just, yes, well, if the, if the Phillies are good, they get to say, I told you so. Whereas if it doesn't work out, it's just going to be kind of buried. You know, like, uh, well, whatever. Like, let's not talk about the fact that I had it wrong. My thing is, like, you can criticize Gabe Kapler for the things that he has failed to do, uh, both on the field and, and really in these press sessions. I think it's okay that you're allowed to criticize him. I think that, that we're within our right to do that. I would acknowledge that, yeah, it looked like the, the ship was sinking right away and that he has steadied that ship a little bit. And I think that you do have to give him some credit for making adjustments and getting this team kind of back on solid footing. But if you're going to say it's unfair to write him off after five games, then I think it's equally unfair to say that, wow, this guy really he has a shot after 15 games. You know, it's, it's still yeah, way especially too since, early. Especially since nine of those 15 games yeah, were against yeah, the, the Marlins, the Reds, Reds, and the Rays. The Marlins, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, and I just I get this sense like there are some people out there that are like, I'm going to take the, the opposite approach to this. Like, and, and if they are good, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, see, I, I told you so. And I think they're the same people that did it with Doug Peterson. Sure. And I think it's, you know, the same people that kind of did it with, you know, Brett Brown to an extent. Although after tonight, I think some of those people may be reemerged. We'll see. Uh, you know, I don't know. And hey, that's wait. all I'm really going to say. I don't want to get too much further into Gabe Kapler here. I think that we've we've sufficiently covered uh, yeah. all angles of him. But the one thing I will say, and this is more about the team, you look at where they're at offensively right now, and it's it's. I I know they haven't played anybody. Uh, I know that the the strength of schedule has been pretty weak thus far, but. When you consider the lack of the lack of offense that he's gotten from the bottom half of the order, and That's oh by terrible. the way, uh, no Pat Neshek, who started a, a throwing program today, uh, Tommy Hunter, who's going to throw uh, in Clearwater uh, tomorrow, 
uh, and he's close to coming back. No Mark Leiter, who I think at the very least would have been a long man out of the bullpen for you, and no Jared Eikhoff, and you've had to replace him with, with Ben Lively, who you know I know that we both don't think too much of. Right. It's pretty impressive when you consider that they've lost a, a starting pitcher, three key bullpen pieces, and then you have half your lineup doing absolutely nothing that this team was able to stabilize. And, and to, to that end, I do give them some credit for that. And I give this team, being as young as they are, with all the expectations and all the hype that they had surrounding them entering the season, I, and when you consider that bad start, I, I give them credit for bouncing back here. Yeah, but I mean, it's it, they they have. And the thing of it is, is that the, the bounce back, though, has been on the shoulders of starting pitchers. Starting pitchers. Um, and Reese Hoskins, Odubel Herrera, Scott Kingery, and Cesar Hernandez. I mean, that's it. I mean, other than that, nobody else is doing anything. I mean, I, I'm not worried about Carlos Santana. I know he's hitting like 150 or whatever. Let's let's talk about Carlos Santana uh, uh, real yeah. quick because I know that that's the, the thing. Nobody's nobody's worried about him. He's hitting 143 right now. Yeah. Uh, he's got a 250 on base percentage, and he's slugging 304. He's 0 for his last 11. Um, his batting average right now is 100 points below his career. Uh, his on base percentage is a hundred, about a hundred points below his career average, and he's two hundred and fifty points below his career OPS. Um, walk rates are similar to last year. His K rates fall in line with what he's done over the past few years. Uh, the batting average of balls in play is a hundred points lower than last year. And and so my my question is, and the line drive rate, this is the thing I always look at. Line drive rate was about twenty percent last year. It's currently at uh, a little under seventeen percent. Is this just bad luck? I know the eye test says that he squared up a ton of balls and they just kind of keep finding gloves and that in June will probably hit 650 and, and this thing will all even out. But do you have any concern about him? Um, I, I don't have any major concern. And sorry, there is the clock that this is this is what this went off during uh, Snow the Goalie with uh, <laughs> with, nah, with Russ. Okay. But uh, so I apologize for the clock going off behind us. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't have major concern yet. I mean, He's never been a great hitter in April. I mean, if you look at last year, he hit 224 in April, uh, you know. Um, but his – and actually, last year, April, May, June, 224, 231, 219, he didn't hit until the second half of the year. July, he hit 325. August, 284. September, 286. So he's a hitting season kind of guy. Yeah. I mean, so – but, his, you know, his on base was, was, uh, was better than what it is right now. But, I mean, if you look at his OPS by month last year, 695 in April, 749 in May, 689 in June, which is low. 1.026 July, 997 August, 811 in September. I mean, that's he's a second half guy. And if you look, I think if you go through every season, you kind of see that with him. He's a guy that gets better as the season goes on. So I'm not really, really worried about him. I'm a little worried if if he's doing this and you're still batting him too. You know, maybe maybe it's it's you sit there and say, okay, we're going to leave you in the lineup, but we got to drop you because you're not being productive in a in a productive lineup spot. I'm okay with that, but uh, no, he doesn't concern me. But the bottom of the lineup does. All right, so not concerned about Santana. Uh, we talked at length last week about JP Crawford, and he's bounced back a little bit. He's picked a little up a bit, few yep. hits, and he's up over 200 now. And I don't I don't want to get too much into him, but. Um, are you concerned with the catching position? 11 for 57, yes. uh, Jorge Alfaro and uh, Andrew Napar combined this season. They're hitting a collective 193. They've gotten nothing from them, and, and the defense hasn't been outstanding either. I know that Alfaro's uh, framing has improved this season. He's, he's gotten some strikes that he hasn't in the past, and I know that was a big concern. Uh, but all we hear about is Jorge Alfaro's offensive potential. Um, I'm not a big nap guy at all, but uh, they've gotten nothing there from that position thus far. 
No, not at all. And, and their strikeouts to walks are pretty pathetic too. I think it's twenty four to six. Um, so it's not even like they're they're. I mean, they're, they might be, be be too selective or not selective at all. I mean, I, I haven't looked at their uh, their counts, like how many how many pitches they're seeing. Um, but yeah, no, I, I that is a concern. And we talked. If you go back to our first episode, we kind of talked about one of the concerns we had coming into the season was they didn't really have that depth veteran catcher when they cut Rupp, and that's this is why we brought it up. Um, they didn't really have that depth veteran catcher in the minors who they can call on if one of these guys you know got hurt or wasn't playing well um and now here we're starting to see again it's still the third week in april so we we have a little bit of time but geez if if we're you know three weeks from now still seeing the same lack of production from those two phillies really could use a catcher uh, a veteran guy to come in i mean even just just to be there you know, maybe you don't keep Nap up, and and you and you go you know, go get a veteran guy to kind of be a backup to Alfaro, but who can, if Alfaro is really struggling, you can rely on. in, in that case, and yeah, I'm, so I'm certainly concerned there, and it's yeah, interesting. I, and I don't know who that guy is because catching depth around the game is weak. Uh, I know the Mets are in a world of trouble at the catching position right now. Um, it's, I don't know. Maybe you find a team that's that's out of it. You know, who's like got a guy who's about to enter free agency and you can get him for a song, yeah. <laughs> you know, who knows? I mean, they got look at what are the reds got? What are the, what are the rays got? What are the bra- You know, the uh, Marlins got, I mean, well, the Marlins got real Muto yeah. <laughs> who, who wants out, uh, but he's going to cost you something. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, that's a concern. And I know he's got 15 RBI, but, Mike Calfranco is still Mike Calfranco. Yeah, I have, I have nothing new to add on him. Um, somebody <laughs> said, yeah, he's got all these RBI. And, and I said, I, I don't care. Uh, he just he still has the same approach. He still has the same issues. He still can't lay off sliders low and away. He's still just up there wildly swinging away. And, and I know that he gets a hold of one every now and then. He puts together a decent game. I know he had an okay spring training late in spring training. He, he kind of heated up the week prior to the regular season. Uh, I know that he's had some some big hits or you know run producing hits for them so far. I just don't see it. I I don't think it's going to work out. I still hope I'm wrong, but uh, the, he's done nothing thus far that that suggests that this is going to be any different. And the last guy, I know you have something you want to talk about, Aaron Altair and his approach at the plate because it's not good right now. Yeah, he's killing them right now. Uh, 077. He's three for 39 to start the season, uh, 448 OPS. And he comes up last night in the sixth inning. And I know he homered against the Rays the other day. Um, and he actually somehow has eight RBI. That, that's all you need to know about a, uh, RBI in terms of, of relation to how effective of a player you are. Aaron Altair has eight RBI, which isn't a terrible number through, what, 15 games, right? The guy yeah. has three hits this season. So, I mean, that, that tells you all you need to know about the effectiveness of RBI as an indicator of success. He comes up in the sixth inning after Reese Hoskins leads off uh, with his one hit of the game because he was walked three times last night. And Hoskins takes a one-two pitch that's probably about eight inches uh, off the outside corner. And he just flips his bat at it, and he keeps it down the right field line, and he doubles. And so the Phillies are down a run, leadoff lead off double. Aaron Altair comes up and gets ahead 1-0, and he takes a slider. It wasn't even really a good slider. kind of hung a little bit, and he just weakly pops up to second base, doesn't move the runner over, uh, and the Phillies go on to not score in that inning and end up losing by a run. And I don't know at what point 
you don't want to overreact, right? We're still in April. You don't want to bury guys that are talented. Clearly, Altair is a good defensive player. Uh, he has some speed. He has athleticism. He can play all three outfield positions for you. He has some pop. I mean, we have seen that. It's not like we're, we're creating something that's not there. But what point do you say, we've got to sit this guy down or, or potentially does have an option remaining, send him down to Lehigh Valley and try to figure out what's going on, especially when you have a guy like Nick Williams, who this team does not seem to be in love with, uh, who's played pretty well. Uh, I think we're, we're getting to that point now. You know, 50 at-bats, if you can't put together a, an average that, that eclipses 100, it might be time to have him go down and figure this out. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. Um, and, and if, you know, you can sit there and say, well, what are you going to, what are you going to replace him with? Well, you got, you got a guy you can call up from, from Lehigh Valley, right? You can, you can come in and replace Altair in the lineup I guess on your bench. Where you, you, you go Roman Quinn. Roman yeah. Quinn. Yes. That's what I was trying, I was yeah. trying to get you to say. Yeah, yes. Roman Quinn. Yeah. yeah. Bring Roman Quinn up and see what he can do. He gives you a little bit of, of something interesting off the bench as, as well with his speed. Um, you know, I, I think that you can do that. Yeah, or at the very least, just get Williams more at bats. I mean, he, last night, I, I don't really understand why Aaron Altair was in the game to begin with. Maybe because he had a, a decent game on Sunday, and Kapler wanted to see if the momentum carried over. Uh, yeah, is that? I guess that could be a possibility. But you know, I think it's time to maybe start getting Nick Williams a, a few more looks here. Yeah, uh, and, he, and you know, in he wants to, to potentially bringing up Roman Quinn. Yeah, and you know, he wants to play. You know he wants to play. You know, and conversely, Reese Hoskins, uh, 1.122 OPS. Herrera, like we talked about really, uh, earlier, has been good. And uh, Scott Kingery, who I think we're going to run out of time to talk about, has been maybe not statistically awesome when you look at the batting average and things like that, but it I mean, just seems clutch. like he's in the middle of everything. He's, he's exactly clutch. he's exactly what, what he was billed as. I mean, the guy is just big hit after big hit. A lot of uh, big two-strike hits uh, for a young hitter that's bounced around all over the field. He's played five different positions, three at second base, four at third, four at shortstop, three in left, one in right. That guy's been awesome, right? So so Scott Kingery coming up with clutch hits, super versatile. Uh, Reese Hoskins, Odubel Herrera really have been the, the bright spots offensively. It'll be scary to see. You know, if this team can get a couple of these other guys going offensively, what they do. It's If you would read me the, these guys' statistics and what they've done thus far, I would say they, they probably are five games under 500 right now. Uh, so to that end, you know, we'll see how the law of averages shakes out. But to me, this team could be better. Um, and, and I'm taking the positive, the positive approach with these guys right now. We'll see. I got one um, before we wrap this up. Sure. I got one major league baseball thing. I always like to throw in one mm-hmm. little – thing from around baseball going on um, to kind of get to. You know that they – that it, I'm a little perplexed by the schedule. And I have been since before it came out, right? But the, they've now lost 24 games due to weather. Yeah, I think that – And they're, they're going to they're gonna break a record. Yeah, this okay? is unprecedented. Yeah. They have two weeks left in April. The, the record is 25. <laughs> so for the, for the first month of the season. Now, they've extended the season by four days – but, I mean, if you really look at it, they've also now played 22 games in the first three weeks of the season where the temperature was below 40 degrees. That's the most for an entire season in, since 2001. For an entire season. They've played one month or three weeks even. They um, had that game in Wrigley Field where it was like 28 degrees and the team, between the Braves and the Cubs on Saturday, and it, there was 18 walks, four wild pitches, two hit batters, four errors, and the final score was 14 to 10. I mean, you can't play baseball like that. I, I, 
I just think that Major League Baseball has to make it has to come. And I know they gave they want to give the player the agreement with the players' union. They want to give them a, f- a little few more days off during the season. And I get that. And the only way to really address it is to start earlier. Fine. If you're going to do that, then you have to make the schedule where you are playing those early season games in warm weather cities or domes. That's the only choice you have. You can't be playing these games. Mike Trout was hitting a home run in the snow in Kansas City over the weekend. You can't have this happen. So logically, that makes a ton of sense, right? Um, how <laughs> well, would you I mean, feel? I, I, I try to think logically. If the Phillies had not played a home game yet. Would that annoy you? Would you be like, yeah. "Oh man, come on! I, you know, I want to go see the game." No, I get it, and I get that, right? And I understand. Well, I'm, that. I'm, I'm asking that. I mean, I'm not really trying to play devil's I, advocate here. I, I, I'm kind of curious, like would. Do you need some schedule continuity where, you know, you're packing games in in July, August, September on the East Coast and the Northeast? Is that fair to the fans? And conversely, if you do that, you know, let's just say you're the San Francisco Giants and you're two games out of the wild card in September, but you had to, you know, host a a ton of games early in the season and you might be playing – six games at home in September because you you used up all of your home games already. So from a competitive advantage standpoint – is that fair? And I think that that's what Major League Baseball has to take into consideration because because logically it makes a ton of sense. Sure, yeah, don't play games in the Northeast in April. Simple fix. So, so, so the, I think the solution to that is is you have a compromise, right? So, um, maybe you only get one. You, you get a series at home in the first two weeks in a, in a cold weather city that's an outdoor stadium. I mean, give them one um, with a day off in between, or maybe a day off on either side of it. Um, so that way, if there is bad weather, you can postpone the game, even if it's not raining but i mean you know there's no reason to be playing in 28 degrees and wind like they played in chicago i mean there's just no reason that game should be postponed so maybe you do it that way and instead of saying okay well we're going to make it since you were so lopsided early the end of the season now you got to play a bunch of games on the road you sit there and say okay whatever these warm weather cities that had more home games in the first two first two weeks of the season they have a road trip right after the all-star break that's that long and it's got, and that's when it happens. It happens. So you get it even during the season, um, middle of the season, and don't punish them in September. I know what you're going to say I, to this, but let me ask you this: What yeah. do you say to those that that will tell you that 162 games is needlessly long, uh, and it's time to scrap 20 games off the schedule, move to you know 140, let's say, or 135 game schedule? I, I'm not. I'm really not a. I'm You're really not opposed to it. Ah, come I'm on! Really, I thought you were going to be really the guy that was like, ah, 162. You got to keep I, it uniform. I, statistics. Well, I'm a tra- I'm a traditionalist with baseball statistics, but I mean they they've changed the number of games in I in the know. past. I mean it was 154, and I even think that would be better if you just knock eight games off and go back to what it was pre 1961 and go back to 154 game season. You, you, you're saving yourself ten days of of a season, maybe even two weeks, um, doing it that way. So. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it because I mean, records are records are, are records, and okay, so some of them will never be broken, but some of them are never going to be broken anyway. You know what I'm saying? So the game has changed and evolved in such a way that you know, I look at other sports too. I mean, hockey constantly changes its its scheduling, and and I don't you know, and point system and everything else. But no one's ever going to catch Wayne Gretzky's records. I mean, right. it's not like you're, oh well, if we cut back on five games here or add three games, no one's ever going to break that record. No, I'm just completely selfish. I mean, it probably so. does make sense, but I just. I like no, having I, games on. More games is better than less games. In yeah, but I'm perfectly fine keeping it at 162, Bob. I'm, I just think that they just they, there's a better way to map it out. And I, I don't think that 
I, they, they really took that into consideration this year. I think that they looked at it and said, okay, well, we have to add games because we're giving them more off days. Let's just throw them in end of March, beginning of April, and cross our fingers. And that's not the, that's not the best solution. I mean, there's enough, there's enough cities that have you know retractable domes or are warm weather that you could do most of these games. And we're not talking about having to do the, an entire month. We're talking about the first two to three weeks of the season where you can rotate it through there, maybe give a team a home series, try and sneak one in and hope to get it in. Um, well, it, you know, and, and because it's become a story, this is something that people are talking about now. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe it will force a reaction. I mean, uh, you could dismiss it and say it's been like this forever. It's always been cold in April. It, it really doesn't get talked about. It, for whatever reason, it's become a, a major issue now. Um, my guess is that Major League Baseball probably won't do anything about it. I think that there's probably money and continuity and things like that that they'll say, this has just been a fluke year. You're going to get bad Aprils from time to time and, and oh well. But uh, I hear you and uh, be interesting to see if they do anything about it. Yeah. So anyway. All right. Well, you want to wrap this thing up or what? Yeah, well, we do. We got to wrap this puppy up. Um, we want to thank everybody for tuning in to uh, Crossed Up, the Phillies podcast here. Uh, once again, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ant San Philly and Bob is at BW Crossing Broad. Also, be sure to check out our other uh, podcasts on the Crossing Broad network. Um, we have uh, the Crossing Broadcast, which airs Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Um, we have Snow the Goalie, which is my hockey podcast, uh, which airs on Thursdays. Um, the Crossed Up always goes on Tuesdays. And then we have the two soccer podcasts. It's always soccer in Philadelphia, which is the Union podcast, which is on the weekend, and uh, Crossing Broad Very FC. Very good. You got them all by I yourself got, that got time. Them all by me. I did good, right? I practiced. It's like a, it's like a quiz. Yeah. I practiced. Crossing Broad <laughs> FC is the other one. That's with uh, Russ and Phil Kaidel. So um, anyway, thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll check, out, check you out next Tuesday, and hopefully we'll have more great things to talk about with the Phillies. Until then, have a great day. See you, everyone.